Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. I'm a feminist, but being in the changing room at yoga when pregnancy yoga comes out is an odd experience for me because to me they all look like handmaids. Because they don't talk. They're very pregnant and they've got excellent posture. <laughs> There's just a sense of godliness to them. It's the yoga that's done it, don't get me wrong. I should have left that one to the end until you're warmed up. <laughs> I'm going to do that one at the end again because I think you're going to find it's really funny and <laughs> not at all creepy and judgmental. I'm a feminist, but I watch Love Island. <laughs> <laughs> There's more. Um, <laughs> I watch Love Island because I like to psychologically assess people while being low-key aroused at the same time. <laughs> it is, it's what I like. <laughs> I'm going to admit it. And also, I think, like, I feel that a lot of people watch Love Island for the same reason that a lot of people uh, watch true crime. Because... <laughs> You watch true crime and you're like, what would I do in this situation? How would I escape being murdered? Right? But I watch the violent go, how do I not give John from Brighton a handjob? How do I go to the pool? How do I pivot? I'm a feminist, but I try not to judge people who watch Love Island because... I know, I know that so many bright feminist women love it. And I'm actually on a Love Island WhatsApp group, which I love. There's a lot of lols on that WhatsApp group. But deep down, like I try and watch a few episodes every now and again just to keep up with the WhatsApp chat. But when it's over, I'm like, thank God. I love the group. And the group tends to stay a little buoyant between Love Islands. Well, there's only been one since the group started. Yeah. But honestly, there's a part of me that just goes... What are these people seeing? Because everyone says, oh, but it's great because it allows people to talk about gaslighting. Yes, because you're witnessing live gaslighting. 
that's not a good reason. That's like saying, oh, we've put live homicide on the television because it's really bringing the question of homicide to the fore. But you're provoking it. But a lot of women now look at that and go, I don't want that to happen to me. But you've made it happen. And now you're saying, so women realise it shouldn't happen, but you've made it happen. Are you gaslighting women that watch Love Island? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You've done this. No, in a very real way, I feel like I am the de-gaslighter. I'm the one saying, you don't have to watch this. Uh, you don't have to participate in this. Yeah, I do watch it to learn about gaslighting, but also if there is a hand job, <laughs> it's an added bonus. I'll say that. I just like watching a duvet go up and down very quickly. <laughs> I mean... I don't know, I shouldn't be watching this. Oh, God. I can't see... Watching someone else give a hand job is so unerotic to me. I don't find that titillating at all. I'm just like, oh, no. I don't want to give a hand job myself, to be honest. Much less <laughs> watch someone else do it. I'd rather watch someone do it than, than do, do it. it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's like but, football. Yeah, but that's like that. <laughs> I'm not going to do a match for 90 minutes, no. but I'll support the person that does. You know? For me, it's like watching that How Clean Is Your House show. I don't want to clean my own loo. I don't want to watch someone else clean their loo. End of story. Turn it over. Little bit of Mad Men. Yes, I'll watch that. Men in very well-cut suits. Women appreciating those men. It's wrong. I see that. I'm also gaslit. Uh, so okay. Gina who's standing in for Tom has brought us cocktails on stage mm. and I'm a feminist but I have this massive desire to say I don't normally drink at work like I deserve a medal I'm aware that most of you don't drink at work <laughs> but comedians do so I feel very proud of myself saying I never drink before work or at work I'd like imagine if you were getting an x-ray and your radiographer was like I never drink at work I, <laughs> I just want to assure you that I... Hello, passengers. This is Captain John Sylvester. Uh, We're about uh, to take off here at Heathrow. Uh, Sorry for the delay. Um, I'm having a gin and tonic, but I just want to say I normally never drink at work. (laughs) This is a real one-off for me. Uh, We've got a new flight attendant on. She does things a bit differently. I'm going to sip it very slowly. (laughs) The quality of your flight will not be undermined in any way. Oh, she's brought me some nuts. (laughs) That's basically what I'm doing. Nice. No, I support you. I'm a feminist, but I like using misogynist swear words and I'm trying to stop. So, like biatch. Yeah. It's a good word though, good word. Oh, it's so percussive. Sometimes you just want to go, "What's up, bitches?" Yeah. You don't you shouldn't. <laughs> don't. So I really like the word motherfucker. Mm, me too. Right? Me too. It's just like a nice Lovely. It sounds like a jelly, you know, motherfucker, you know, it's jovial. It's a jovial, jovial. swear word, right? And I was like, that's not very nice about mums, you know? So I thought of thinking of a different word to describe motherfucker, such as trucker fucker. Nice. That's gender neutral as well, you know? Yeah. Truckers can be men, men or women or anything. Um, but I've come up with a proper word for it now. It's called Matt. And uh, that's my mum's partner. <laughs> Matt. Matt. He's a motherfucker. Uh, does he listen to your work? No, he doesn't. Do you think 
sorry, do you think Matt, a trucker from the middle of Ireland, listens to the guilty feminist? He might, if you're on, Alison. <laughs> if his stepdaughter's on, I think he would. Oh, and also, here's another one, because um, for sexual stuff. Um, who's your daddy? Right? Yeah. We could change to who's your progenitor? Nice. Yeah, that's neutral. <laughs> no? No, I like it. I like it a lot. Um, I'm a feminist, but I just realised the long-running puppet show I did for the children I nannied for before I went to university, every Christmas, every night, we would give the boys an episode of the Faloopy show. Um, and the Faloopy show was about... It was, he was really a forerunner of House. Um, he was a dog, a shaggy dog puppet... He was a washed-up detective. He was addicted to painkillers. Um, How old were these kids? Five and seven are probably around that time. Um, they loved it because they knew it was a bit naughty. And he had two sidekicks who were not cut out for the police force um, because they weren't barely able to identify how to open a door. One was called Detective Inspector Dog, who was a dog who had a police uniform. And the other one was called Floppy Jalopy. Um, Floppy Jalopy? He was like a little, a little, yeah, shaggy dog. What was his role in the police force? Oh, just very... HR. <laughs> yeah, very stupid. <laughs> Floppy would send them out to do things, they'd get it all wrong. And there was an evil, you know, the nemesis. The sort this of sounds like amazing. nemesis. And he was called Hair Bear because he was German. <laughs> and Tom used to do his voice and be like, Hello, Floppy. I've been expecting you. Please come in, I have made muffins. And as it developed on, it was clear that Hair Bear was gay and very much in love with Floopy. So you could say, very positive, that they were gay characters. But I look back on this now, and I discover it did not pass the Bechdel test. In that, it didn't have any female characters. <laughs> I was looking after two small boys, and what did I do? I gave them no female characters. There must have been female characters. I'm looking back, I'm scratching my head going, I can't remember one. How could you know them as, like, were their genitals on show, the puppets? Or... No, I just, no, you're right. Yeah. They probably were women. Thank you. There we go, yeah. <laughs> Retrospectively making stuff woke, that's what we should do. <laughs> you know? I know everything then. I think you'll find the A-Team was quite a great feminist text. <laughs> <laughs> Live from King's Place in London, the Spontaneous Show presents The Guilty Feminists with me, Nova Francis White, guest co-host Alison Spittle, and our very special guests, Miranda Payne and Nikki Adams, talking about sex worker rights. This is The Guilty Feminists, the podcast in which we explore our noble goals as 21st century feminists and the hypocrisies and insecurities which undermine them. I'm Deborah Francis White, with me is Alison Spittle, and we're talking about sex worker rights. Alison, yes. you and I uh, don't own this topic in a way that we want to do stand-up about it, so you're going to do some stand-up comedy about Love Island, then we're going to spend most of this episode getting out the guests who really know about this topic, and we're just going to let them talk. Absolutely, Deborah. Excellent. Uh, would you like to do some stand-up comedy? I would love to. It's my right to do it. <laughs> Is that okay? That's fine. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's good. That's good. It's really excellent. Please welcome to the stage the incredible Alison Spittle! Oh gosh. Hi, how are you? 
Um, do you know what? I've done a bit on Love Island. Let's do a whole stand-up bit on Love Island because I might as well. So, Love Island. I love it. I watched it last year without guilt. It was incredible. I loved it so much. And then at the start of this year, some news stories came out about like the aftercare process and how people were treated. And I wasn't going to watch it this year. And to be honest with you, I felt pretty smug about it, right? So I was like, this is something I love and I'm not going to watch it. Good on me, right? And um, I saw Love Island a lot like eating veal, you know? It's very tasty, but I don't like how it's made. And then um, this year, wasn't watching it for a good three weeks, felt delighted of myself. And then my sister rang me and said to me, Alison, Alison, there's a woman from two towns away that's entering the Love Island Villa. Well, I'll be honest with you lads, uh, that night I put on the TV, got me slices of veal. I was going all in. <laughs> All in. Um, Maura Higgins entered the Love Island village. She's from a place called Ballymahan, which is so close to my village that I get my Chinese takeaway from there, right? <laughs> and me and her, we have a special connection. We do, we're soulmates. Um, <laughs> like, basically, she did my sister's hair for her confirmation, right? <laughs> So I feel that we know each other <laughs> on a level that no one else can say, right? And what's well, weird, right? It's like I went back to my village in July, right? Um, for like a family occasion. This girl came up to me and she's like a friend of a friend, right? She came up to her, are you watching Love Island at the moment? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I am. You're, you see Maura Higgins in it, yeah? It's like, yeah, she's amazing. Yeah, my sister started a fight with her outside the chipper last year. <laughs> it's the most glamorous thing to ever happen to me in my life. <laughs> She's correct, it is. <laughs> and like, uh, the thing is, I, uh, about Love Island, I love that there's more Irish representation on Love Island. Number one, because she says the word shift on Love Island, I love that word. It means snogging, right? And uh, I hate the word snogging. It sounds like a shit yogurt, right? <laughs> and I refuse to use it. I refuse. And also, like, um, I've been thinking generally about Irish people and their representation on UK TV. Um, because we export a lot of our mad bastards over to the UK, <laughs> generally. It's the economy. It's like butter, you know? British people can't get enough of Irish mad bastards, right? And um, I've been thinking about it. I thought it would be lovely, though, to have, like, an Irish version of Love Island. I'd call it Love Ireland. <laughs> and, and <laughs> this is how I would see it play out, right? So we got five big beefcakes standing beside a swimming pool, all topless and lovely, right? And then we have Caroline Flack in the middle because the Irish broadcaster, they paid the big bucks. They're getting her in, right? She's standing in the middle. And then we have a, a woman in a bikini shivering, right? <laughs> because it's Ireland. <laughs> and she's there. And Caroline goes to the lady, now, it's just time to pick a guy that you have a connection with. Just 
pick any guy from the five here that you have a connection with. And the woman in the bikini is gone. Um, <clears throat> well, Caroline, um, I can't pick the first fella. Um, he's my cousin. <sighs> Actually, Caroline, they're all my cousins. <laughs> and Caroline's after hearing this for the fifth time today and she's just sick of it, right? And she goes, well, just pick the one you spent least of your childhood with, okay? <laughs> and that's, uh, that's Irish dating for you there. Um, <laughs> you've been lovely. Have a great evening. Bye. Please welcome to the stage, Deborah Francis White. Woo! So I started thinking about the two times in my life that stand out for me when men have gone to bat for me as an ally. So the first one, I was very young. I was on my gap year. I had just got to London and I was very naive and virginal. I was in fact at this point a Jehovah's Witness. Now, regular listeners will know that I used to be a Jehovah's Witness. People who are here for the first time, lock the doors, bring the cart out. No. No, I'm no longer a Jehovah's Witness. I am an atheist now. But at this point, I was a young, naive Jehovah's Witness. I hadn't been kissed. My hand hadn't been held. I was completely, like, vulnerable and not very comfortable in my own skin. But I was so excited to be in London. And I used to take myself off to the theatre after my job. I was temping, and then I was, you know, doing a bit of door knocking. I'd, to be honest... I'd let the door knocking lapse significantly. <laughs> I was in London, come on. So I'd gone out that night to some, you know, Noel Coward play or something that I was so excited because I was in London and I thought, what do you see in London? You see Noel Coward, sure. I was from Australia, is what I'm saying. And, I, and I'd gone off on my own to see this Noel Coward play and I'd got the programme and I was reading it on the tube home and I was sitting there on the tube and a man next to me turned and said, have you just been to the theatre? And I, being a young Australian woman from a beach town where people speak to each other, said yes. <sighs> I engaged, I made eye contact. I thought, oh, this man is interested in the play, I thought. This man's interested in the play and he's interested in me and he wants to discuss the works of Noel Coward. <laughs> Perhaps he was also at the theatre this evening. Perhaps he's seen Phantom of the Opera and will tell me about that, I thought. So I said, yes, I went to see a Noel Coward play. And he looked at me and he said, can I see the programme? And I was like, okay, it's a bit, bit odd, but sure. And then he just had the program in his hands and he was twisting it and twisting it. And he just looked me in the eyes and went, can I be your boyfriend? <laughs> and I just went, caught out of the corner of my eye that there was a man there. And I just went, this is my boyfriend, Bob. <laughs> and the guy sitting here was a young guy about my age. He went, yeah, I'm her boyfriend. He <laughs> was American, young American guy. I'm her boyfriend, yeah, I'm her boyfriend. We're together. And then I just looked across at this young couple sitting across from me who were going, oh, what's going to happen next? And I went, we've just been to the theatre with Beth and Andrew. <laughs> and they just totally played along. They just went, yeah, we all went together. It was good. And then what we did is we created a little tribe together. <laughs> We started discussing the play, and this is the best thing you can do as an ally. Started discussing the play, 
in which Andrew, not his real name, said, I thought the first act was a bit slow. Didn't you? And I said, I did, but it did pick up after the interval, didn't it? And then Beth, who was enjoying it, said, um, yes, I thought the Lady Caroline, I don't know if she was the understudy. And this went on and on and on until we had discussed an entirely fictitious play. And this man just got more and more and more shut out. And Bob, my boyfriend, leaned across and he took the program from this man's hands. He smoothed it out and he put it back into my lap. And then I looked at him because I was getting off at the next stop. And I was like... And he just went... So we got off the train together and we went, Bye, Beth. Bye, Andrew. See you next week. And then we got in the lift and it was just really this romantic moment. And bearing in mind, I had never been kissed before. We were just standing there in the lift and I was like, oh. And he went, I'm so sorry. I'd like to kiss you, but I'm a Mormon. (laughs) And I said, I'm a Jehovah's Witness. And he said, oh my God, really? (laughs) And I think he thought I was taking the piss. And I was like, no, I really am, I really am. And he said, I'm meeting my parents now. And we came up and there were his Mormon parents. And they were like so sweet to me. And they were so hopeful that I was a Mormon girl and I had to tell them wrong, weird sect. (laughs) But we said goodbye and he kissed me on the cheek. And I was like, you know what? That was an ally. He was an ally. Because he didn't go, oh, weird thing happening here. Don't know what it is. You know what? He played along. And I think it's one of the best things you can do. And I feel like just create... You don't have to challenge someone. You don't have to say, you know, if someone's being racist or aggressive, you don't have to challenge that person. You don't have to talk to that person. I read this advice. The best thing you can do is just start talking to the person they're attacking and talk to them about something normal. But my added extra is pretend you're friends. People who do this, they're cowardly, and they don't go after 12 young Muslim women in headscarves. They go after one. So what you do is you just turn around and you just say, you know, just randomly pick a name and if there's a young Muslim girl with a headscarf on and you just turn around and you just say, Asadi, are you okay? And then somebody else, you just get someone else to chip in and go, Jeff was a bit weird at work. And you just start creating this bigger and bigger tribe of people going, Andrew, have you got any chewing gum? Until it's clear that the whole tube carriage is with this person and you're the only one with the problem because we've all just been out to see a Noel Coward play. That's my recommendation. The other thing that I think could work, what if you just started a flash mob dance? I don't know, this is just an idea. I don't know, I'm making this up now. But like you have your flash mob song. This is an idea, actually. Okay, I'm just brainstorming, but I think this actually is an idea. Okay, everybody who wants to align themselves and be allies uh, to people of colour against racism, to people of the queer community against homophobia, and to women against aggressive sexism, why don't we have a flash mob song that we all do a dance to? We all learn it. All the allies learn it. We all ally up for each other, and we all learn it. Okay, and so somebody's like being aggressive to this woman and anybody in the carriage can get out the song and say it's, I don't know, give me a good song that would work. I'm 
I'm happy. So the, the Pharrell Williams, is that his name? Yeah. So suddenly one of you just pumps, happy, dun, 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 and people just start going, dun, 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 until the whole carriage, all of the allies are in the carriage, and everyone's like, flash mob, flash mob. I'm telling you, the dickhead who's like, will be like, oh no, I've finished here. I'm getting up here. I'm telling you, it's not a bad idea. Because then nobody's going, hey, yeah, stop that. And then, like, you know, being stabbed, we're all just dancing. Until, like, we're just like, if you don't know the steps, dude, get off. That fucking King's Cross, mate. you got to know the steps. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The other guy in my life who really allied for me, and I'll never forget it. So I was quite a new stand-up comedian, and I was invited to Australia to the Melbourne Comedy Festival, and one night I was asked to host... Uh, the Fringe Club, which is a sort of late-night kind of bear pit feel comedy club. And it started around, like, 1, 2 o'clock in the morning, so people were very drunk when they came in. And then they got drunker and drunker and drunker, so they had to put the headline act on first because it was just no point later. Um, And they asked me to compare this night. So I went out, and I wasn't... I was, like, experienced at my thing, but I wasn't experienced at this thing, which was riot control for drunk people. So I thought, what am I going to do? Because they weren't an audience in any way they were all talking to each other and looking at each other and they were just like ordering drinks at the bar there was nothing about this like oh welcome to stage Jim Francis White and everyone just continued on so I had to come out and I thought I'm going to have to get them to be an audience and so um, I got them shouting out I wasn't doing material I was like hey you if I point over there you say hey you point over there you say ho that kind of thing to try and get them to <laughs> work really well fuck you and <laughs> and I, so I wasn't even doing material and this guy just shouts out, do jokes about periods and vaginas. <laughs> and the whole audience went, huh. <laughs> and I just, I'm not this kind of comedian, but I just, everything came up inside of me. And I just walked over and I said, what's your name? And he went, Khan. And I said, well, Khan. Just because I have a cunt and you are one doesn't mean I have to do jokes about them. <laughs> no. And then I brought on the next act. Now, I got them back together and I thought, I've handled that pretty well. I've handled that pretty well. It's not a joke that I'm proud of, but it is, in that moment, I just thought, no, you have to shut it down. And I got a round of applause. It was all great. And then I brought on the next act. Now, I'd never heard of this guy. He was 18 years of age and he'd been flown out from America. And we all thought, 18 years of age, how good can he be? We'd never heard of him, but apparently he was some kind of YouTube star. But this was like six years ago when we didn't really even know what YouTube was. Like, it was, we knew it was a thing, but it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't, we, I didn't really get, I just thought there's a child coming out now. Um, I introduced him as on as a Tim Minchin I could have given birth to. And he, because he played songs, and I went, okay, please welcome Bo Burnham. Bo Burnham comes out onto the stage, 18 years of age. I mean, it's the first time I think he performed outside his bedroom. He wants this Australian audience to like him, right? He came out onto the stage. He'd passed the piano. And he came over here and he went, you, are you Khan? And the guy went, yeah. And he went, yeah, I thought so. You look like a cunt. 
And then he just berated this guy for like 10 minutes saying, do you think that you can speak to women like that? This woman is a comedian. She's doing her job. That is what she is doing. In what world is it okay for you to shout out that she should do jokes about periods and vaginas because that's what you imagine women think about because that's what you think about when you think about women because you're so fucked up in your head, Khan. And I tell you, if you do this at a comedy gig again, this is what's going to happen to you. Some guy is going to come over and berate you for 25 minutes because we don't think it's good any more than she thinks it's good. And this audience hate you and everybody hates you. This is not an appropriate way to behave, Khan. <laughs> and then he went over to the piano and sat down and sang a song about maths. <laughs> and it was the greatest song I'd ever heard. And I thought, what? This kid rules. Because he wasn't coming in like a shining knight on armor. He knew that I dealt with it. But he was just saying... The opprobrium isn't just from women. It's from other guys. We also think this is hateful behavior. And I bet Khan never heckled like that at a comedy gig again. Ever since then, I've always had a really big crush on Bo Burnham. Thank you very much. Hello, Guilty Feminists. It's Deborah. just letting you know that we are coming to America and Canada. So if you are in New York, Boston, Philadelphia, Chicago, San Francisco, Seattle, Los Angeles, Toronto or Vancouver, we are coming to you. Uh, or even if you can get to one of those places. If you want to know the dates, we start in Boston on January the 2nd and we're pretty much there all of January. So go to guiltyfeminist.com and you can find all the dates and all the links under the American flag Um, please come along. It's going to be amazing. If you're looking for some amazing Christmas presents this year, The Guilty Feminist has a merch store. The profits from our merch go to our pot for good things. So things like suffragette and projects with help refugees, etc. So go and buy something this Christmas. We've got t-shirts, we've got hoodies, we've got aprons. I'm a feminist, but I do love an apron. That's what the apron says. We've got tea towels and all sorts of other wonderful things. Mugs, good fun things. You can also buy necklaces from Steve Alley's Road from Damascus. So think of us in your Christmas shopping. On the 3rd of December, the Guilty Feminist and Amnesty International are teaming up together for the Secret Policeman's Tour. That's right. We are reviving the amazing Secret Policeman brand. We've done two wonderful shows this year in London and Edinburgh, and now we're coming to Manchester. On the bill is Nish Kumar, Juliet Stevenson, Susie Ruffle, Shappi Kosandi, Bridget Christie, Tiffany Stevenson, Sinetra Sarkar, Johnny Cochran, and more. So get your tickets now. I'm also doing an evening with Emma Thompson, Greg Wise and guests for The Guardian Live. Guests include Bill Bailey, Katla Moran and Amelia Clark from Game of Thrones. Uh, you can get your tickets at Guardian Live and there's a link on our website. And finally, Global Pillage. We have got three exciting Global Pillage dates coming up. That's our diversity-based comedy panel show. It's on at 4 p.m. at King's Place. It's a lovely afternoon matinee show, so you can come along, uh, be part of our hive mind where you get to shout out answers to questions, and then still go on to your party in the evening. It's the 17th of November, the 24th of November, and the 7th of December, our Christmas episode. Book now, find tickets at kingsplace.co.uk or globalpillage.net. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. 
But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. Our first guest today is a writer, performer, comedian, podcaster, campaigner, and former sex worker. Please welcome Miranda Kane. And from the English Collective of Prostitutes, please welcome Nikki Adams. Please introduce yourself to the audience. Hello, my name's Miranda Kane. Hi, uh, my, I'm Nikki Adams. I'm from the English Collective of Prostitutes. Okay, so let's get straight into it and hit the ground running. Mm. We really want to talk about the rights of sex workers, which is, I think, something we should have talked about on the podcast until now. And well, I, I was going to say, um, because you started off by saying that you hardly ever drink at work, whereas the last time I saw you, you were battered on gin at the Do The Right Thing podcast. Okay. That's how I got this gig. All right. <laughs> That, again, was their fault. <laughs> they did. They, I'll tell you what happened. They said, I said, no, thank you. And they said, and Margaret Capon Smith said, and I quote, oh, we always talk about people who come on this show and don't drink. And so I said, oh, I want to be in the gang because it's a really cool gang. So I said, yes, I'll have a vodka soda and cranberry, which is my drink. And I drank it too quickly. And they make you tell stories. And I ended up telling a story about going on a spanking retreat in upstate New York. <laughs> and I told more than I would... I mean, I told a very sanitised version of that on this podcast. And I told a much more racy version. Because that, that's why they say that to you. Don't go on that show. Listen to it, but definitely don't go on it. You will tell things you should not tell. Um, if you're a comedian, obviously go on it. Mm. Now, I think there are a lot of feminists who still have an issue where they go... I want to support the rights of sex workers, of course, but I also feel like all sex workers are vulnerable. All sex workers are people who shouldn't be doing it. And what we should be fighting is the very idea of sex work. So could you talk a little bit about that? Because I think we need to get past that in order to have this conversation. Mm. It is a really emotive subject, but a lot of people always say, well, sex work, isn't that you being a victim? Isn't that you being abused? And, and aren't you putting emotional labour into it? And, and for us, every job is laborious. Every, like, I'm sure there are people in this room that hate their jobs. And, and we're not saying that. We're saying that we should be able to work because everyone needs a way to earn money. And for us... Uh, the particular way that we chose was sex. I mean, I chose sex work because I couldn't stand to work in a fucking call centre. So <laughs> we're not... <laughs> if anyone else wants to come and join me, it's fine, but I take 10% finder's fee. But 
the reason why we use the term sex work is because it is work. We are out there and we are marketing ourselves. We are making websites. We are taking pictures. We are, we are working. And when you, people say, oh, but surely there are victims and there are people who are being abused. And yes, there are. But for me personally, that isn't sex work. That is rape and that is abuse and that is people who are victims. We have to stop conflating sex work with victims of abuse. Uh, so we want sex workers' rights because it would help everyone. It would help everyone on the spectrum because if you are being abused and if you are being trafficked, you would then be able to go to your nearest police station and you would be able to report the abuse without therefore being worried about persecution and prosecution yourselves. We have a lot of people who are migrants and at the moment they're too afraid to go back and tell police that they're being trafficked and they're being abused and what good is that? If they're worried about being deported, what good is that? Surely we need the police to be working for them and to say, we don't care where you come from. We don't care about your passport status. What we do care is that there are these mats out there who are... <laughs> throwback. What? <laughs> these... I, I think we should probably say trucker fuckers because yes. I feel like one, your stepfather isn't your favourite person. Oh, I love he's, him. No, yeah. he's a lovely guy. <laughs> oh, okay. Just, oh, just yeah, he's, he's, he's literally fucking my mum. Like, that's not a... Yeah. And good on him. Like, no. you know what I mean? I'm just saying, it's not trafficking women. I think we need to just be clear, in the truck... I know there are some people out there going, oh, but he does drive a lorry, though, doesn't he? Eh? Yeah. <laughs> it's... Poor Matt. <laughs> um, oh, yeah, sex work, worker rights and comedy. That's such a great mix. Why uh, the fuck did I choose to do... Um, but there are these fuckers out there who are trafficking women and they are the ones that we need to be persecuting. Mm. Those are the ones that we need to be going after rather than the police and the forces going after the sex workers themselves and the people who are victims of them. And that is what we want for sex worker rights. Mm. So... Thank you. <laughs> so, Nikki... We talked about this today and I said, look, I, some, one thing I do is seminars for people in business about diversity and inclusion. But if somebody locked me in a room and forced me to do it and didn't pay me and uh, made me do that day after day, hour after hour, I wouldn't want to do it. There's no job you would want to do if you're being forced to do it because that is slavery. Now, there is obviously an extra level to that where you're being penetrated and intruded upon that is far beyond anything that I can imagine. You're being raped. But that is a completely separate issue from sex work. Um, you have to think, if you were kidnapped and forced to do your job, that's the equivalent of the difference between sex work and the way that some women are trafficked. Yeah, and you wouldn't call that work either you'd call it abuse yes. or rape or whatever but I do think there's a big difference between how people feel and what you then do and people are entitled to feel squeamish or uncomfortable about what sex workers do for a living in the same way as you may not approve or particularly want to do other jobs but I think when it comes to what change is needed, you have to listen to sex workers because we are the ones that know best what's needed. And what we do want, first and foremost, is decriminalisation. I mean, we're saying, 
look, the job is not a great job often. You know, you are, there's an enormous amount of violence, the, exactly for the reasons that Miranda's given, in that we don't get protection from the police and courts. And we want a change, and we're saying, get the criminal laws off our backs and support us in the kind of safety mechanisms and work that we do to keep ourselves safe. I mean, that's the really crucial thing. But I think some people are pushing a particular line for some other completely different reason. Because most women are very well-intentioned. They may say, look, I don't like the idea and I wouldn't do it myself, but I defend your right to do it and I would like you to be safe. And that's good. But some women, including some women politicians, don't say that. They say, I am going to characterize you as a victim, and I'm going to say that I know better than you what's good for you, and that's just not on. And a lot of the stuff about trafficking has been a big campaign of misinformation. And the fact is, is that the police and the authorities use trafficking, first and foremost, to arrest and deport migrant women, and as a way of reinforcing immigration controls. And it's a lovely thing for them. They can go into a premises and, you know, handcuff women on the floor, go in with dogs. You know, most of the women then get deported, and yet they can then go on the TV and say, these raids were needed in order to save victims of rape and trafficking. So it's a very good cover for what they want to do a lot of the time, which is raid and arrest. And we had something that happened in 2013, which was the Soho raids. Um, one of the reasons why we want decriminalisation is in decriminalisation throughout the whole of the UK so that everyone, all police constabularies are working to one law and one rule is that it can depend on what part of the country you're in as to how they treat sex workers. And in 2013, they had the Soho raids. And this was in December the 5th at midnight. And they came in and it was snowing. And they came into Soho, one of the most well-known red light districts in the world. And the police came in with 250 policemen in vans, in riot gear, with dogs. And they pulled out 23 women from their working flats. And these are women that are in their underwear and there are these guys in riot gears with dogs and they are pulling them out of their flats at midnight and it's snowing and they're handcuffing them to the floor and they brought the national press along this is the bit that really upsets me they brought the national press along and the very next day in the newspapers there were pictures of these women trying to hold their hands against their face trying to hide themselves and they said all the headlines the very next day were saying these were victims of rape and abuse and trafficking in what world do we put pictures of trafficking victims and rape victims on the front page of fucking newspapers the very next day in what world do we pull victims of rape and trafficking do we pull them out of the streets onto the streets at midnight when, when it's snowing and we use dogs and rice gear upon them but it's because these women were sex workers and they were immigrants as well and that was why they thought they could do that and we've been fighting against that ever since and it doesn't only mean that they were treated horrifically that night it also means that the women in Soho now have got no trust for the Metropolitan Police it means that they cannot go to them we've heard from them and Nikki you've I'm sure you've well we fought those cases in fact we got the flats reopened I mean it took us like six months but we got the flats reopened and it wasn't because we thought that the prostitution in Soho was a great job. It was because working in a flat with other women in a place like Soho where it's transparent and so where people do know where you are and you can come forward to a certain extent or you could come forward to a certain extent and report violence without revealing the location of your flat and at risk of it being closed down. 
you know, we fought those cases because that is safer than working on the street. And mm. when they closed down the flats, a lot of women did end up on the street. Mm. But I don't think a lot of feminist women would agree with how women are treated like no. that. I think the problem often comes down to the push to criminalize clients and the way that it's done in the name of equality. And I think with that issue, again, people do have to listen to what sex workers say would be the impact on mm. us of criminalizing clients. And it would make it more dangerous and difficult to work. It would mean that all the things that we try to do to stay safe would be even harder. And so, for example, working on the street, you know, you don't have the time to check out a client, have a quick conversation before you get in the car. You can't work close to another woman. Basically, the clients who are kind of on the run, because they're then worried about being arrested, mean that you are in pushed into more isolated areas. And if you're working together in premises, the law says that if there's more than one woman working together with another in, in premises, it's a brothel and it's illegal. And under those circumstances, to criminalize clients means all the things that you do now, which is to screen clients, get their name, get their credit card or something to prove who they are, uh, you wouldn't be able to do. You know, that's what's happened in the US where they've banned advertising and where it's a blanket criminalization. It's much more dangerous and attacks are really at an even higher level than they are here. And people just can't come forward and get protection. In Ireland, I have a friend that's a sex worker and she uses an app called Ugly Mugs, which is, yeah. um, do you have a similar yeah, thing that's in the really UK? Yeah, Ugly Mugs is, an, is a Oh, UK. is it? Sorry, I thought yeah. it was just an Irish yeah, it's too. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> No, like, it's National Ugly Mugs, and it is here, and it's great. Yeah. But the problem with that is, is that, you know, the biggest thing that we face, as Miranda described, is that you come forward. Like, you know, a friend of mine, she was attacked in her premises by men with knives. She bravely reported it. The police, when they first came, ignored, basically, the information about who the attack were, and then came back the next day with a letter saying, if you're in this premises when we come back next time, you're going to be prosecuted for brothel keeping so of course she moves on ends up working in a place where she's more exploited gives more of her money to the boss and then the police kind of go on about how there's pop-up brothels and as if they didn't create them in the first place so can i ask what is legal in this country what can you do it's legal to exchange sex for money but it's illegal to work together with somebody from premises, and that's brothel keeping, and it carries a seven-year prison sentence. So it's quite, you know, it's really a serious charge. And then it's illegal to loiter and solicit on the street. And that is a really outrageous charge, because I've been in court with a woman who was actually done for loitering, and the evidence against her was that she was standing on a corner looking in the direction of several men. And that was it. I've definitely done that. <laughs> <laughs> We're all going down. Yeah. I know. Lock me up. <laughs> and then you get. Also I get mean, I've stood on the street when the cast of Magic Mike's come out, and that's <laughs> you that's can't. Uh, I mean, you can't not look. It's like the light of heaven shining yeah. at you. I don't think that's oh, fair at all. I um, can't. They got a restraining order against me. So. <laughs> fair, fair. So you can have your own premises, but you can't have more than one person there. Yeah. Otherwise, yeah. so and the very thing that would protect you exactly is the very thing that you're not allowed to do. So one woman can take a man back, but she can't advertise. So it's ludicrous laws. I saw Alaki Blythe's amazing play, which was called The Girlfriend Experience, and it was verbatim. So she had recorded in a seaside brothel for ages, and then she cut down to make it into a play. And the actors—it's called recorded delivery. The actors here 
what the real people have said every night so their performance doesn't travel too far. And it was fascinating. But one of the things that fascinated me the most was these women sitting around in a shared premises, which is illegal, and the chats that they were having in what we call the green room. I don't know, is it called the green room? What's it called? Sort of the <laughs> the uh, green room. room. What's it called? Oh, yeah, and we've got called? fucking riders as well. Yeah, what, yeah. What's, it, what's it called though? It's the room just the waiting room. It's just be allowed. It would just be a room. room. Just be... Um, okay, they're sitting around in a room and... <laughs> They're all like chatting about, you know, have you got Twix and blah, blah, blah. And they're talking about their boyfriends. And one of them was saying, we're paid up members of the National Trust now. And we go and see stately homes on the weekend and stuff. And I was like, this sounds exactly like any green room. Yeah, any it's so weird. It's always like they're just normal women, yeah. isn't it? Like, how would have thought? But, that, but I think the way it's stigmatized, that play was very powerful for me because I went, oh, they were not sitting around talking about how frightening this was and how awful this was. And actually, they had regular clients who they liked, who they enjoyed seeing, and they felt like they were giving them something and they were doing... There was quite a nurturing kind of nourishing role in that. I mean, say la vie, but I couldn't give a shit about the clients. Like, you know, they come with the money and that's what I like. (laughs) Well, there was that attitude as well, but it was interesting that it wasn't... I think how I had previously perceived it, yeah. which is every client's awful, every job's awful, you wouldn't want to do it. Blah, blah, blah. It was a lovely kind of kinship that they had. And I think the terrible thing is to take that away from women and say you have to work on yeah. your own where yeah. you really yeah. would feel unsafe. I think yeah. like a lot of people don't socialise with sex workers a lot so they don't really... That, that they, they know, know of. That they know of, yeah. <laughs> and that they don't like... I think a problem is like... <laughs> it's a couple of people laughing because they're sex workers. <laughs> <laughs> and... I just think like a problem is like the, the language I feel like like when you say you're from the English collective of prostitutes I was like oh can you say that like yeah, no, but you were upset that by the English or the, like, or the prostitutes <laughs> it's like the English or the prostitutes yeah. that Nikki uh, <laughs> wants to know if you have a problem with can you say that <laughs> or was it the collective bit because yeah. people are shit <laughs> I think it's like you know like prostitutes sounds like Jezebel or something like that it sounds like weird I think so I, I didn't think much about sex work until my friend told me that she was a sex worker. And then, like, then I was like, oh, right, fair enough. And, uh, but I, I, I think, like, uh, a scary thing for me is that the violence that happens towards uh, sex workers is because people don't really consider their humanity. Mm. Do you know? That they're mm. seen as disposable. And that's not me going, oh, anti-sex work or anything like that. But I think society does that by the way that we don't, like, interact and talk. And we should be able to talk about sex work as if it's any other type of work because it is work. I feel that the more the conversation is stopped, the more we don't talk about it, the worse it's going to be for people, mm. generally. I think that's yeah. one of the biggest reasons why we want decriminalisation. I always feel like if we got decriminalisation, you would start to find out who sex workers are, and yeah. you would yeah. find out that it's your sister and your auntie and your mum sometimes. I mean, the fact that most people would be like, workers, do you pay tax? That's yeah. The, you know. yeah, they would, but I think the first thing <laughs> you'd find out is... Um, you know, the first thing is, is you'd find out that most sex workers are mothers. And then you have to kind of ask yourself, well, what kind of society do we live in that mothers are so unsupported and in such hard times mm. that sex work is the best option than other jobs in order to support our kids? And I think that's another bridge between, you know, a lot of feminist women also do know now that we're living in really hard times. You know, there's the poverty is horrific. I mean, four million children are living below the poverty line. And I was listening to the radio this morning and they said kids are coming into school not having eaten and coming from houses that don't have carpets. And you kind of think, that means that there are hundreds and thousands of mothers who are stressed out of their mind 
worrying how they're going to feed their kids next day. And under those circumstances, the fact that some women go into sex work, we shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be surprised when so many women are on zero-hour contracts and mothers at work don't get any acknowledgement for their caring work or any kind of flexibility and are usually paid the least. You know, I mean, if we're living in that kind of society, surely we should be able to pull together and change it so that people don't have to go into sex work yeah. rather than supporting a measure like criminalizing clients, which is fundamentally just calling the police on women. Yeah. It's increasing police powers and increasing the laws against a relatively vulnerable sector of women. And I think that we have to be able to do better than that. You know, we have to be able to find a way. I mean, I never really even call myself a feminist, but I feel like we have to be able to find a way for women who consider themselves feminists to cross that bridge and support sex workers in the way that we say we need to be supported. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> When you see politicians debate about it and they just talk about you as if you're like a foreign situation or, you know, they can't even really uh, humanise sex workers. There's no representation. Yeah. Think of all the representation you see of sex workers on TV or in the media. I was going to talk about that. Yeah. yeah. All you ever see is like um, either... Happy Sorry, hooker. Happy hooker no. or the yeah. poor victim. You see poor the happy victim. hooker, yeah. the uh, exclusive escort. Or Billy Piper. The, yeah. But even her book, her book went into her friends and her family. But the TV series was just her and her clients. Yeah. And so for me, one of the reasons why I wanted to do comedy about it was because, well, A, I didn't want to go back to the call centre. Um, <laughs> and... Be, like, I wanted people to see this is what a sex worker looks like. A sex worker, thank you. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Fit. Um, <laughs> we come in all shapes and sizes, all colours and genders, all sexualities. We are, we are not what you see on telly. We are everywhere. And it's so annoying that there isn't that representation. One of the things that we say is like you said earlier, is it's nothing about us without us. Yeah. And one of the things that I really believe is trying to get people, so if you are someone who is a, a playwright or, a, or you're writing a book or you're, you're wanting to feature any kind of sex work whatsoever, talk to a sex worker. Yeah. We want to talk to you because we want you to get that representation right. And I, I was thinking, like, I, I watched a great documentary about the Yorkshire Ripper mm. and about how misogyny played a part in how many people got killed yeah, because people so didn't see sex workers as actual people or victims. They would go, oh, well, that was a prostitute. We won't investigate too much into that. That prostitute had three children or exactly. whatever. It didn't matter. But I feel that with sex workers not being represented, it's actually dangerous because mm. serial killers can go on killing sex workers. I don't know. I've been listening to a lot of true crime and I feel, <laughs> I feel like misogyny and anti-sex work feelings really play a part in violence against women they do but so do the laws i mean yeah. you know we have guys that kind of you know try it on and then they kind of go well we know you can't report it yeah. because mm. they know that if you're working together with a friend which is obviously safer than working on your own you're actually breaking the law and they can get away with it so mm. it is an attitude thing but i think if they 
you know, for us, if they dealt with the laws and got the laws off our backs, yeah. we could be in a much stronger position to deal with the attitudes. Well, there was something in Alecky's play about that, that one of the Johns, and again, it's all verbatim to what happened, but one of the Johns came in and... Is, it, is that the right terminology no. to say Johns? Well, yeah. Not like, for me. I just, what do you no say? One, no, none of the sex workers that I know have ever called them Johns. I just call them clients. Okay. Yes. I'll, see, I'll I'm take... learning so much. Yeah, I know, but it's that <laughs> kind of dehumanisation. Oh, let's call them Johns. That's a dirty thing. And it's not. It's just clients. It's a, it's a job. It's work. So they're I'm, my clients. I'm going to take that again. Uh, so, but I, I, what I want to do is edit this out so that it looks like I knew. But what I have to do <laughs> is leave it in because we've all got to learn together. Uh, one of the clients came and there were lots of clients who were obviously regulars and things, but this guy was really pushy and you could hear through the wall where she was recording, it started to get really aggressive. He was in the hallway and they came out together, mm. if my memory of the play is correct, and got rid of him. One woman on her own can't do that. No, no. Yeah. So it's that law has to be changed because it's just ultimately women are dying. And there's news reports that say things like there were X amount of prostitutes killed and then three respectable girls. Yeah, that's what yeah. they did with the Yorkshire yeah. Ripper. They yeah, I think it was that. the Yorkshire Ripper. The Attorney Ripper, General yeah. actually said the saddest thing about this was that respectable women were killed. Yeah. It's an absolute disgrace. And, like, if we didn't have this attitude towards sex workers, it shouldn't be permissible for people to talk about... Uh, and, I mean, language, like the whore, you know, uses... And I, I've used it before, and I'm, I'm stopping myself from doing it because I don't want to dehumanise anybody. And it's so weird how it's just so pervasive in our culture. So the English Collective of Prostitutes, can we talk about the language of that and why you've held on to that name? Yeah, we started in 1975 and we started at a time when uh, French sex workers had gone on strike to protest a load of serial killers that the police were doing nothing about and they literally went into churches and had this massive struggle, fantastic, fantastic struggle. And there were two migrant women in the UK who started our organisation and they called themselves the English Collective of Prostitutes after the French Collective of Prostitutes ah. and we're left with that name even though most of us are not English and the prostitutes we've kept because we're still in a stigmatised profession I mean the New Zealand Prostitutes Collective feels the same we feel like you know we don't want sex worker we all use and we use it mostly, but there's a way that sex worker sanitizes what is actually our situation. And so we're kind of hanging on to the prostitute until we get decriminalization and then we might change. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just, I just wanted to also pick up on something that you just said about New Zealand, because a lot of people, when they talk about decriminalization, First of all, they get the word mixed up. They say legalisation. We don't want legalisation. Legalisation puts on a set of rules and regulations uh, that often make it impossible for us to work to. So it, it would mean that a lot of women, a lot of people, a lot of sex workers would get fined if they're not working in certain places at certain times or they might get prosecuted and therefore get trapped into sex work. Because if you're fined doing sex work, how are you going to pay off that fine? You have to do more sex work. So for us, decriminalisation is what we want. And one of the only places in the world which is decriminalised is New Zealand. And that often surprises people because they think it's Amsterdam or some a place full of scum and villainy. Um, but actually, it's lovely New Zealand and they've had it decriminalised for... Since 2003. Since 2003. And it's been very successful. And it's, yeah... And that's Women say, that, I mean, like 90% of sex workers say they have more employment, legal, health, safety rights, you know, since decriminalisation. 
But also, uh, the thing that I think is really, really important is that more sex workers say that they have the power to refuse clients. And I think that that yeah. is a key marker of exploitation within your workplace. Because if you have the power to refuse clients, then you have some kind of control over your situation. And you're also, you're not kind of in a situation where you're having to take any conditions under any circumstances. And that's really a massive thing, I think, from New Zealand. Yeah, it's huge because we recently had, not recently, but a few years ago, there were raids in Scotland, in the saunas in Scotland. And one of the things that they are afraid of doing now is keeping condoms on the premises because they get used as evidence. Um, so it can lead to an actual sexual health epidemic. And there's something in... Um, Jay Leroy? Levi? Jay Levy. Yes. He did his dissertation about how things are working in... Well, not working in Sweden. And basically saying that it's a massive sexual health epidemic because women can't buy condoms. They can't even go into the shops that sell condoms because they are suffering from poverty. So they can't even buy them. So the shopkeepers don't even let them in. And because there's no outreach projects, they have to walk for miles just to get to someone who might be able to supply them with condoms so it's leading to a natural sort of massive epidemic over there so one of the things is that it actually helps to save people everyone if we can just carry fucking condoms for fuck's sake, God's sake yeah. so what you're saying is like new zealand is the best in regards to sex worker rights yeah it's yeah. the only country yeah. in the world that's actually decriminalized i mean parts so of even new in the netherlands, netherlands no netherlands yeah. is legalization as miranda yeah. says which oh, is that basically the state says you can work under these circumstances and in these areas and if you work outside you will still be illegal and that really means that I mean, practically, it doesn't give workers the power because it means that the brothel owners know that you either have to take a job with them or you're going to have to work illegally. And New Zealand, what they did is they said up to four women can work from premises without it you needing any kind of extra regulation, just like you would if you were a hairdresser or some other kind of small business like that. And if it's a bigger brothel, there are, is some kind of certification, but it's a very light regulation, and it doesn't require people to be public you know, as uh, sex workers. And so it's the system that actually gives workers more control in their hands. They have one clause against migrant sex workers, which we don't want, but fundamentally it's a model that we could follow and would massively improve the situation here and it's such a lovely landscape as well like <laughs> delicious <laughs> yeah, we get that too lovely. Yeah. Yeah. comforted lamb and the landscape yeah. stay for the safe yeah. sex worker rights <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> criminalization and, of the rings <laughs> and also like loads of those places in amsterdam are owned by men. All those places where you see the women in the windows are owned by men. There's very few places like that that women are allowed to actually own because they're too poor. Because they're sex. They're too poor to, to own themselves. So, so it would be good to have like co-ops. Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's right. not the shops. The you know. Yeah. <laughs> I fucking love a co-op though. I'd, Real I'd deal. Say the co-op would really get into it. You have like your funeral yeah. care. <laughs> Your grocery order, <laughs> then your brothel, you know? Co-op, always working for you. <laughs> you can get a tree in one, go for a snack. And they've got the pharmacy, that's where you can get your Johnny's from. Oh, perfect. <laughs> so you can say Johnny's for condoms, but not for clients, just to be clear. <laughs> um, can I just ask briefly, because we've, we've got to sadly end soon, because um, I'm really enjoying this conversation a lot, and I'm learning so much. Where is there... An empowerment in sex work for women. Where? Mm. Getting the paid money. to have sex? Yeah. <laughs> I, I thought that was pretty fucking great. Um, there, 
Okay, here's my problem with the word empowerment. Why does it have to be empowered? It doesn't, like, when someone says, oh, weren't you empowered? Didn't you feel empowered? And it was like, do you know what? Sometimes I felt like shit. And it's okay for me to feel like shit. Because this is a job. This is how I earn my living. And it's fine to have bad days without feeling like this has to be totally criminalised. It is fine if you don't feel empowered. Certainly there were times when I felt empowered, but I felt empowered by being a plus-size woman where men wanted to have sex with me after a lifetime of being told that I wasn't a sexual being. After a lifetime being told that I should be grateful for men to give me any attention. And suddenly to have men paying me to spend time with me? Come on, that was, that was fucking brilliant. Um, <laughs> They like I to think keep it a secret. They do. They, they do. That's where people like me come in. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> you keep your love of fat girls a secret, and I'm going to make dollar dollar bills, y'all. <laughs> I am making it rain. You're Fine. just like Lizzo. <laughs> <laughs> I do play a particular kind of flute. So that is true. <laughs> 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 but can I, I think though I, I think oh, sorry I think though that there is something about uh, I think a lot of women have used prostitution have used sex work to get some kind of dignity and respect and financial independence you know I mean one of the things we're up against a lot is the idea that sex work is uniquely degrading. And I think sometimes, I don't know about often, but it is the, exactly the opposite. I mean, for me, it was the way that I got out of being dependent on men and being kind of dominated by them because I suddenly had money of my own and I could choose the relationships I wanted. And people talk about, you know, the whole thing about sex you raised, that some people do feel strange about the fact that it's a lot of sex and transactional sex. But I, first of all, people have sex for all kinds of reasons and sometimes it's for money. Before I became a sex worker, I had a lot of sex and a lot of that was transactional. You know, I would look at my boyfriends and I probably didn't even realise, but who you find attractive is often the guy with the car or the guy with the bike or something that's going to get you out of your situation or it's got some cash, it's got some money to spend on you. And after I went into sex work, it was a way of being financially independent and having more dignity really and not being beholden in the way that I had been previously and I think that you know I met a woman who'd just been cut off universal credit it had been cut off for three months and her electricity and her gas had been stopped and she turned around to me and she said you know they talk about prostitution but at this moment in time prostitution would be the more dignified option for me and I think that's the considerations and the choices that we're often making and I think a lot of women know that it's just that it's hidden and not spoken about and a lot of women know how much we have to use our sexuality to get by in the world we don't like it we would prefer it not to be and sometimes prostitution is the way that you don't have to be like that so how can we help how can we help? We've got these cards which ask for decriminalisation of sex work. Uh, we fill these in yes. and send them yes, off? Yes, or go online and sign. It's Pledge Decrim. You'll see it's got a whole load of reasons on the back. Increase safety, improve health. You know, a whole set of stuff like that. Yes, sign, but be in touch with us as well. We'd love volunteers. I have a whole 
audience here of potential volunteers. We're based at a women's centre in Kentish Town, the Crossroads Women's Centre, with a load of other women's organisations. It's a lovely place. Please come by. And can I talk about my play? Yes, yes. please. Okay, we've got a play between the 1st and the 14th of November. It's a play called No Bad Women, and it's a story, a dramatisation of a real trial where two sex workers, with our support, took their rapist to court. I can't tell you what happened because I, it would be a spoiler. And it's a very good and moving and compelling play and it's on a clean break just be around the corner from our women's center and it's highlighting the kind of hidden movement of sex workers against violence it talks about our own struggle to stay safe and the bravery that's needed sometimes to kind of insist on protection and justice it's really fantastic and i encourage you all to come mm. great so it's um it's written and directed by leslie delmenico and it's on the 1st to the 14th of November at Clean Break in Kentish Town. And we can follow you where to find the more... Yeah. Because um, we won't remember the details necessarily with the people who are here. It's prostitutescollective.net is our website. And it's prostitutescoal is our Twitter. And we'd love you to follow us. That'd be Great. brilliant. Mm. And go to... Where do we go if we want to sign the decriminalisation? Pledge Decrim. Pledge Decrim. You'll and find it, it on our website. Is it yeah. .com or you find it on your website? .net, I think. But you'll .net. find it on It'll our website. It'll be in the show notes. So if you're listening to this at home, uh, go and check out the show notes. So, Miranda Kane, have you got anything to plug? If anyone does fancy some lols, like I was saying about representation of sex work, so I've done a sitcom, it's an audio sitcom available on Audible called Slaving Away, and it's the utterly mundane life of a dominatrix, starring me, written by me. But for me, one of the things that I always wanted to do was to write something about sex work by a sex worker, starring sex workers, and we've had sex workers come and play parts in it, um, as well as Richard Herring. So that's... Whenever, whenever he says, oh, I only ever get to play a, a customer of a prostitute, that's me. So it's called Slaving Away, and it's available on Audible. Thank you. Great. Oh, amazing. Thank you. Oh, Alison Spittle, do you have anything to plug? Uh, at Alison Spittle on Twitter, at Alison Spittle on Instagram. And when's this coming out, would you say? Uh, I'm not sure, but say, cool. plug anything you want and then it'll stay in if it's relevant. Yeah, in the ether. Just uh, Great. So keep go, an eye out for me. You've got lots of amazing things happening. You've got a five-star review from The Times for your play. Oh, i got this play called Starlet, and hopefully it's going to be in the UK and Ireland. And uh, also, I'm in this film called Extraordinary, mm-hmm. uh, which is about a psychic who is also a driving instructor and, <laughs> and ghosts are really tormenting a man and she has to help that man and find herself along the way. Uh, so it's called Extraordinary. It's out this Friday in the UK. How did you uh, forget that? That sounds fucking brilliant. I know, because I got a very small part. <laughs> I basically see my aunt in some mould. Like, uh, yeah, I'm Miranda. What's your Twitter? Uh, my Twitter is Miri Kane, M-I-R-I underscore Kane, Miranda Kane, Kane with a K. Great. And I'm at Deborah FW on Twitter and on Instagram. I'm D-F-Dubs, D-F-D-U-B-Z. And I'm now doing lots of different things there that I'm doing on the Guilty Feminist Instagram. So if you could follow me, that really helped me out and make me feel important. Can I have a really huge round of applause for the amazing Miranda Kane? Thank you. <laughs> Please support the English Collective of Prostitutes and the drive to decriminalise. You've heard how important it is and how, no matter what you think about this issue, 
If you're a feminist, women are going to be better off if this is decriminalised. It's happening anyway. It's all happening anyway. I was reading something historical about abortions in the 20s and somebody said, oh, it was, all a, it's, it was just all a weird nurse and a shoehorn. So it's happening anyway. The character I'm looking at, she had five abortions before she was 30 and she was rich. It's so she could have the abortions. But it's happening anyway. Whatever you push underground, it's happening anyway. But vulnerable people are unprotected. Rich people will always find a way. Rich people will always be okay. All you're doing is penalising poor people. That's right. So can I just say a big, big thank you? And I really, I'm so thrilled that you've come and talked to us about this tonight. Um, the amazing Nikki Adams. <laughs> You have been listening to The Guilty Feminist with me, Deborah Francis, wife, guest co-host, Alison Smith, and our very special guest, Miranda Kane and Nikki Adams. The recording engine is Chris Sharp. Music is by Mark Hodge. The producer is Tom Sidinski from the Scotch Lake Shop. Thanks to Zoe, Sally, and everyone at King's Place, as well as all of you for listening. For more information about this and other episodes, visit guiltyfeminist.com. I'm charmed by the fact that you're wearing a butterfly. I am. Can you I've... quickly show the audience your okay, butterfly? Okay, right there. I'll have to, like, move my back as well. Wait. Wait. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah. Um, I'm so excited about this episode because uh, the overall theme is rights and women's rights, women and non-binary people's rights. Actually, I've learned something recently. Yes. Women and minority genders. Okay. As opposed to women and non-binary people, because it doesn't leave anybody out. It feels we're in a safe space. Well, it's kind of making me feel bad now about my butterfly cape. It's like, (laughs) you've learnt a new word, and I've got a butterfly cape. Yeah. (laughs) But you've metamorphosized out of a chrysalis. I've left the bed today. That's my metamorphosis. You've left the bed. My sweet cocoon. (laughs) You've left the duvet. Hello, Guilty Feminists. It's Jessica Regan here. I'm announcing our final big speeches of the year 2019. We are coming to Brighton to the Marlborough Theatre on Sunday the 17th of November. We'd love to see some Brighton Guilty Feminists there. You've made the trip to London, now we're coming to you. Please go to the website www.guiltyfeminist.com forward slash big speeches to book your place. Step onto the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out at the French Open for a chance to win a Grand Slam title. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. See the action unfold as legends fight for glory and new rivalries emerge. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th, with match replays on demand so you never miss a moment. From the first serve to the final point, Roland Garros promises unforgettable moments and new chapters in tennis history. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. <laughs> <laughs> you will be right Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like, 
you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> this was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, <laughs> yeah, you, you were different. Like you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com Hello, everybody. Just a very quick one about Instagram. If you're on it, Meta, the parent company, is reducing the number of political posts visible to users on their feed. This is a real thing, not a hoax. So go to your Instagram profile, tap the three horizontal lines in the top right corner to open the settings tab, scroll down to what you see, click on content preferences, open political content and turn on don't limit political content. That's an option. Otherwise, you won't see almost anything we post because we are deemed political. Please do that now or you won't even see the posts about our shows, our fun things. So if you want to see Guilty Feminist content and know when we're coming to a place near you, releasing a new podcast, do it now.